Charlotte is right. I noticed the same thing. A beautiful spirit of worship in this house. And um, I just ask that the Holy Spirit just take us up into that slipstream, into his word. Um, I invite you to turn, excellent, it's already on the screen, we'll be, uh, to Hebrews chapter 11, very familiar chapter, the, the, uh, the Faith Hall of Fame, I heard it called growing up. We'll begin by reading the first two verses of Hebrew chapter 11. I, uh, I love the sight of all of you, and praise God for those of you who are online, but I'm, I've got to make a fuss over two folks in my, I'm sorry, ladies, there's no way that you are going to remain anonymous, so I won't make you stand. I certainly won't give you the mic. Don't worry about that. But Carol and Ellen, could you just give us the royal, you know, wave? These are our neighbors. They, they, uh, so Marina and I have this wonderful compound in Somerville. And uh, right upstairs from us, we're blessed to have, uh, for years, uh, a community of young ladies who love the Lord Jesus Christ and who live right upstairs. And, you know, uh, and, I, and, and two of them are here this morning, Carol and Ellen, and I'm I can be more grateful for your presence. Thank you. <laughs> Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 2. Emphasis on the and 2 in a minute. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This, this is what the ancients were commended for. The first verse that we read, Hebrews 11.1, 1, is familiar to most of us. And, mo and many of us have it memorized, especially in the King James. Now, faith is the substance, right, of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We've committed it to memory. The second verse, verse 2, is less familiar. <laughs> I imagine it sitting there as if, as if in the shadow of a skyscraper. You have verse 1 that everyone memorizes. Ask the Iwana kids what verse 2 is, right? So uh, it sits there hidden in the shadow of verse 1. Most of us have seen it, glancing past it on our way to the rest of this powerful chapter. And recently, in my reading of Hebrews, God said, Sam, stop. Go back and read verse 2 again, Sam. This is what the ancients were commended for. And it was as if the Holy Spirit asked me, Sam, what do you see? And I said, oh, Lord, wow. I see an invitation. This morning you're receiving, imagine that you're receiving a golden invitation from the Holy Spirit of God, whose presence is already made manifest this morning. It's an invitation for ordinary people 
ordinary folk to live an extraordinary life. God can take, listen here, God can take ordinary people and turn their lives into an extraordinary life. This is a great adventure. There's a great adventure ahead for you, but it's not for the faint of heart. And it'll cost you everything. I would be content this morning as I worked with this word and the Holy Spirit worked with me into the night. I'd be content if one of you, just even one of you, tore open that envelope and accepted that invitation to follow the Holy Spirit into oblivion and into the life you were meant to live before you were created, before you were born. He's prepared the way for you. Everything is in place. This final courageous step must be a decision. It's a choice. Holy Spirit, on that day of days, we want to hear Abba bragging about us. Staring Satan down and saying, have you noticed my servant? Fill in your blank. Have you noticed her? What I've done in her life? Have you seen what I have done through him? You didn't see that coming, Satan. Would you do that, Jesus, this morning? For the glory of your great name. This is what the ancients were commended for, I read. Ancients were commended, according to this verse, this is straightforward, they were commended for their faith. They were commended for following God by faith, for pursuing Christ. And the writer of Hebrews makes that connection. I don't have time to go into it all. But he's saying Old Testament folk were pursuing Christ we're following Jesus, even then, by faith. That, and that alone, set them apart. That's it. That's all they had. Read this chapter. Noah, and, and Abel, and Abraham, and Moses, and Joshua, and David, and Samuel, and Gideon, and Jephthah, and Rahab, and Sarah, they bled red, just like you. Needed to eat and sleep, just like you. They were human beings, created by the same God who created you. And what set them apart what set them apart in this chapter was just that. 
their faith. They were not supermen and women. This is not DC or Marvel Comics, folks. This is the Bible. This is the word of God. You will not find Thor or Superman or Wonder Woman or Iron Man in chapter 11 of Hebrews. What you'll find are fallible, broken human beings. Look at this list. By the way, it, it, it's one of the reasons I believe the Bible. As a trial lawyer years ago, you learned fast. If you wanted to survive in court, you learned fast one of the cardinal rules of evidence for credibility. It was an acronym that they taught us in law school, BOBS. Forgive me, if there's a Bob in the house, I'm not talking about you. The acronym was BOBS. Bring out the bad stuff. Bring out the bad stuff. What does that mean? Before anyone else points out your witnesses' weaknesses and shortcomings, their, their rap sheet, their, their uh, you know, uh, the things that they had lied about or before, you pointed out yourself in their testimony, in your direct examination. Bring out the bad, stu bad stuff. And the Bible does that. That's why I believe the word. It doesn't hide the bad stuff. It's all there. <clears throat> As you turn the pages of the Bible, you find a very unlikely choice of heroes. Are these the heroes that, you would, that would end up in your novel? Cowards? Liars, cheats, murderers, adulterers, schemers, embezzlers, professional prostitutes, and thieves. These are not the villains in Scripture. These are the chosen. These are the elect. These are the heroes. They were commended. I like that word. They were commended not because they had everything going for them, not because they had their act together, and not because their gifts innately and their character stood them out from among their siblings or their neighbors. The opposite, folks, the opposite. Many of these were the runt of the litter. God chooses the runt of the litter. God chooses the outcast. God chooses, they themselves would not have placed a bet on themselves. But there was a moment where God found them. Where heaven intersected, stopped them in their path, encountered them confronted them and extended a royal invitation. Extended a royal invitation. You know me. I am the God who makes something out of nothing. That's what you see 
right? In the very next verse, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, 3, right? He, uh, it's, what is seen was made from the unseen. What is visible was not made from, what is from, uh, was made from the invisible. This is what God does. I'm the God who makes something out of nothing. I'm the God who makes somebody out of nobody. I'm the God who makes the ordinary extraordinary. Sam, if I can make Abraham a nobody from nowhere and well past his prime into a friend of God, into a man of promise, I can do that for you. Sam, if I can take David out of following the flock, herding sheep, anonymous to his own kin, and make him a man out of God's own heart, a warrior, a king, I can do that for you. And the big question today, this is the question that, that dangles, this is the invitation. This is the RSVP. Will you let me? Will you let me do that? Will you let me do that for you? Will you follow me? And they believed him. This is what the ancients were commended for. These people believed him. And by faith, they followed him. You know, I, I often quote C.S. Lewis. Podemos compartir ese afiche. This is another one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. The Christian does not think God loves us because we're good. But that God will make us good because he loves us. You got that? Man, I wish I could write like him. The Christian does not think God will love us because we're good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Or as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, and Paul might as well be writing about Leon de Judá. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of y'all were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things. How many know what that feels like? The despised things and the things that are not, the things that don't yet exist, to nullify the things that do, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. He delights. He delights in doing this. He shows off. 
the God of heaven. He gets the glory. You didn't see that coming. I could almost hear the Lord say, you didn't see Jerome coming, did you? You didn't see Sister Jean coming, did you, Satan? You didn't see this coming. Pastor Sam, I can almost hear it. I'm hearing amens. But before you sign on, there's that resistance. Pastor Sam, you may say, that's beautiful, but listen. The ship has sailed for me to think that God could do anything more with me. That ship has sailed. I wish I had come before that vicious divorce or before the drugs or before doing time. Right now, there's no room. I don't remember the last time I had a dream. I don't remember the last time I had a vision. There's no room for dreams and visions now. I'm happy God knows me at all. My sister, my brother, this is your lucky day. Or Pastor Sam, I wish I had received this call in my youth or in my first days with God before I got educated, (laughs) before being roughed up by doctrine that that grew up like a vine pressing the life out uh, out of a faith in a big God who could do big things. I wish I could believe that as I did as a kid. This is your lucky day because this is a Hebrews chapter 11 church. There are many like this all over the kingdom. I have often referred to Leon de Judá. I say it with muted, God-delivered pride as the island of misfit toys. This is a church where people who have done time in jail and shelters or both, or have done drugs, or have seen their lives reduced to ashes, everything lost, everything taken from them. People who have gone through hell and still smell of brimstone, they are ushers here. They're teaching Sunday school here. They're leading, yes, praise God, they're leading street outreach here. By the way, folks, and they're pastors here. That's where you are. To be candid, that, that's me, part of it. I won't dwell much here because I want to boast in the Lord, but my first address was a vermin-infested apartment in Spanish Harlem. No one in my family knew what college, even where to go, right? I, there was no hope of college or law school or anything like that. And, and, and even after college, I found myself at one point homeless myself, couch surfing, no address of my own, with a broken life. That, that, on that couch, is where God found me. That is where he found me and asked me, will you follow me, Sam? Will you follow me? 
and somehow he led me here 30 years later, and he led me to this morning. By the way, that's a certain Pastor Roberto Santiago Miranda. Growing up in Alma Rosa, those of you who know the Dominican Republic, a neighborhood in the Dominican Republic, and when he was growing up, sometimes they had light, sometimes they didn't, sometimes they had running water, sometimes they didn't. There was no way out of there. No way out of there. Will you follow me, son? The Holy Spirit asked our pastor. Will you follow me, heart and soul? And somehow the Holy Spirit led that man to Princeton and to Harvard. And then the ultimate promotion, the Lord led him to give it all up. And then he led him here. He led him here. By the way, happy birthday, Pastor. The 25th of July. God calls ordinary people to lead extraordinary lives. God calls ordinary folk to live extraordinary lives. It is what he delights to do. It's his doing. And we can detect a pattern lifted from the lives of these also rans, these people listed in this hall of fame of faith. It's what God expects of those who are serious about following him, about trading their own lives. And that's what it comes down to. This is going to be a trade. Pastor Sam, how does that happen? How do you how do the how do you become how does this how do you accept a Hebrews 11.2 invitation. Well, it's not going to cost you anything except everything you've got. It's going to cost you your whole life. It means trading your life now for this life that God has for you. The pattern will be as true for you as it was for Noah for Abraham, or for Sarah, or for Rahab. Just three principles that I'll share with you coming from this text, and we'll go home. You want to live an extraordinary life. First thing God is going to expect, first thing God's going to require, number one, God will require that you step out on faith. Whatever faith you have, whatever faith means to you. Let me, it's, that is as simple and as difficult as it sounds. First, a word on faith. Pastor Sam, I'm not even sure what faith means. I'm not even sure if I have enough of it. Well, here's the good news. The good news is this. If you have the faith to be sitting in this sanctuary right now, if you have the faith to be tuning in from home, 
you have more than enough faith to experience a breakthrough and live an extraordinary life. It really is that easy. God wants to make it that easy. How's this for an irony? The irony is that the person who wrote this testament to ordinary believers living extraordinary lives, the person who wrote the letter to the Hebrews is unknown to us. This is one of the reasons out of the 66 books of the Bible, we're looking at the only anonymous one. It was no doubt written, there's no doubt it was written under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But most people believe this was not written by an apostle. And it's pretty clear as you read this text. It was not written by an apostle. Probably this person was not an eyewitness. Very important. This person was not an eyewitness of Jesus. He was not an eyewitness of his resurrection. It might have been Barnabas. It might have been Apollos. We'll find out in heaven. But the, whoever this is, it's the first of a generation following Jesus completely by faith. Whoever wrote this could be sitting in line of Judah right now. It's someone who heard someone say, I saw Jesus risen from the dead. And he's following Jesus by faith. That phrase that you see all over Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, by faith. He's following Jesus by faith. By the way, just like you. Just like you. Following Jesus, and get this, even among the fraction of those who got to see, who had the privilege of seeing the incarnate Jesus in person, even then, it has always been a matter of faith. Even then. You remember John chapter 20, right? Verse 29, Jesus' encounter with, with Thomas. Have you believed? Because you've seen me, Thomas? You remember? I'll believe it when I see the nail marks on his hands. I'll believe it when I, I want to see a, a spear mark on his side. That's, you know, seeing is believing. Jesus scolds Thomas, who ate with him, who walked with him, who saw, who saw everything, who saw Jesus walking on water, who saw Jesus feeding the 4,000, who saw Jesus feeding the 5,000, who saw Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Thomas, you ought to know better, dude. And then he says, blessed. And the implication there is more blessed. More blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You are more blessed than those who saw the risen Christ with their own eyes, yet doubted in their hearts. That's why Peter writes, though you have not seen him, I could almost see, hear him in his voice choking. 
writing this line in amazement, in amazement. Peter's telling us this morning, you have not seen him, but you love him. You have not seen him, but you love him. Though you do not now see him, line of Judah, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy, that inexpressible joy that's filled with glory. You never saw him, but we felt his presence this morning. You haven't seen the risen Christ, but the risen Christ lives in you. And we have felt an inexpressible, God, Pastor Sam, I can't explain this joy. There's no, there's no standing in the sanctuary without feeling joy. I don't know why these tears are coming down my face. I don't know what's happening to me. It's 2,000 years later, and we're weeping over Jesus. Bless God. At minimum, as the author of this letter writes in verse 6, to get here, you must have summoned the faith to believe that God exists. You get that line? That God exists and that he's a rewarder of those of seek him. More on that later. More on that later. A breakthrough just requires that you go a little further, that you break, that you break from what you see to embrace the promise that you don't see. Abraham Leave the only home you've ever known. Go where I lead, and I promise I will bless you. The man gets up and does it. Moses, Moses, touch the deep blue sea behind you with that staff, and I promise I will get you and these people out of this jam. Rahab, Rahab, my dear, risk your life entertaining these spies and I promise you a new life for you and I will bless you for generations to follow Matthew names her as an ancestor of Jesus the Messiah your breakthrough breaking away from your now life into God's life will require similar faith Giving up methadone, breaking clean of it, which someone in this, in this congregation has done. I bless the Lord for that person. Will require faith. Giving up, giving up that relationship that you know God cannot bless. Becoming one man with one woman for life. If that's the price you have to pay, will require faith. Typing up that college application at any age, at any age, and pressing send will require faith. It may begin with something as simple as tithing, as Pastor Brent was sharing. You know what tithing is for me? It's a weekly, or bi-weekly, I get paid bi-weekly, bi-weekly, or monthly reminder to trust God at his word. For me, they're faith training wheels. And you need faith training wheels. At some point, faith has to become more than just an idea. 
It has to become something that you do, a way that you think, a way you behave. Get out of the boat. Get out of the boat. Walk on water, and your faith will grow with each succeeding step. It's the only way it works. God will require that you step out in faith. Number two, and this will drive some of y'all nuts, God will take his time. God will take his time. God will keep his promises. But he will take his own blessed time. He doesn't measure time like we do. He's in no hurry. The question is, can you go the distance? To live an extraordinary life with Christ, you must be prepared to go the distance. God promised Abraham a son, but Abraham doesn't see Isaac born until he's 100 years old. And this, and this, this writer says, and as good as dead. God commanded Samuel to anoint David as king. But it would be at least 20 years, 20 years before David is crowned king of Judah. And a lot of that, living in caves and running for his life, escaping Saul. And another seven years before he's crowned king of Israel. God gave Joseph a very vivid dream of ruling, of being honored by his brothers who hated him and saving his family. But it would take decades. It would take decades. Meanwhile, he was sold into slavery, thrown in jail, and, for, and seemingly forgotten. God doesn't finally call Moses to deliver Israel from Egypt until he's in his 80s. Until Moses is in his 80s, his testosterone level almost thoroughly depleted, humbled by the desert, looking forward to retirement. Who, me? That was basically the exchange between the Lord of hosts and, and, and Moses. Who, me? But this is not wasted time because God is shaping you. God is disciplining you, as Hebrews 12 tells us. No discipline feels good at that time, but God is working on us, perfecting us, shaping us, preparing you for the promise, preparing you for greatness. You, you, your heart, your character, your eternity matter more to God than the promise. For God, it's about you. The journey matters more than the destination. In fact, the journey is the destination. God working on us is the whole point. Has God promised you something? Is he taking his time? Don't be impatient. Don't rush it. Go the distance. He knows what he's doing. If you rush it, you ruin it. I received a poignant lesson in this recently. If you remember a couple Sundays ago, Pastor Danny Carrera of Victory Outreach preached here at Leon de Judá. Remember? 
God used him mightily. Pastor Danny feels a call to come to Boston and open a Victory Outreach house in this town. We need him here. So we're praying for that. But in his sermon, he shared that his first, he first walked into a Victory Outreach house himself in 1999. 1999. I talked to him about that afterwards. Because it was precisely in 1999, how's this for a coincidence, that I came to Boston from New York City to begin ministry here. Just months apart, it turns out. But precisely the same year. If we had met <laughs> in 1999, me and Danny, it would have been a very short conversation. <laughs> we had nothing in common. He, he might have tried to kill me. Um, yeah, thank God for the Holy Spirit. God knew what he was doing. He knew 20 years ago that Boston would become today the epicenter of the opioid crisis in America. He knew 20 years ago what he had to do in me, what he had to do in Pastor Danny. He knew what he had to do in Leon de Judá, to get ready for today. He knew 20 years ago what he had to do with Victory Outreach. He knew what he had to do in Boston and who he would ascend to what positions. The Lord is a strategic planner. In his perfect timing, all these points 20 years later intersected perfectly. Perfectly. No algorithm that we could feed into a computer could do that. He cares. God cares about world events and the times of your life. He's a virtuoso composer. And he's creating in your life a masterpiece. But that takes time. And he knows what he's doing. That takes time. And he knows what he's doing. Finally, and this is the hardest one, and it sort of encapsulates the, other, encapsulates the others too. God requires, no, God demands surrender. God demands surrender. We're not talking about magic. You need to be all in, no half measures, if you're serious about living an extraordinary life through God. Breakthrough is not a matter of magic. It's a matter of status, who we are in relation to God or who God is in our hearts. So much, it, it, it matters more than what we actually do. He demands surrender. We could come in any shape, and the Lord takes us in any shape that we come. But once you come, he needs to see surrender. What some of the mystics and the desert fathers called a glad surrender. In the days leading to this sermon, I read, as you saw, I'm a, I, I'm a fan of C.S. Lewis. And in one of his books, uh, in an appendix, actually, in one of his books, he recommended... Uh, Dr. James Moffat's 
translation of the, New, of, the, of the New Testament as the next best thing to reading the original Greek. All right, so if C.S. Lewis recommends that, of course, I ordered it on Amazon. And I got a book with a copyright of 1922. 1922. In it, you remember I mentioned Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6? Moffat translates to please God in Hebrews 11, 6 as to satisfy God. To satisfy God. And his translation reads like this. And apart from faith, it is impossible to satisfy him. For the man who draws near to God must believe that he exists and that he does reward those who seek him. Sounds a lot like the translation you know, except for the word satisfy. And in a note, Moffat explains, satisfy is used, quote, and you're going to love this, as a servant giving satisfaction to his master. As a servant giving satisfaction to his master. That may sound harsh to us now. And that's fine. Sometimes modern translations are not just more readable. Here's a note from Pastor Sam here. We are also paying a price for that readability. I've noticed. The language sometimes in these translations is filtered so that it doesn't chafe against the hearing of our, of our culture, especially in the context of 21st century America. I get that. The problem with that is, as a consequence, we could be losing out Sometimes we could be losing out, actually being robbed of a spiritual principle that has not changed and is unchanging. And there's a spiritual principle at work here that hasn't changed and is unchanging. And we may not be, we may not be at this point, this is where this walk may be too rich for your blood, and you may drop the invitation in the recycling bin. This isn't for the faint of heart. What are we talking about? Serving Jesus, and I do invite Chris to come up. Serving Jesus is voluntary servitude. Ever heard that phrase? We're not talking about 19th century American plantation slavery. But in the first century, in the, in the time of Jesus, this was quite common, actually. You, you actually, you had a choice what you could do with your life. Not everyone who entered into sl slavery was a slave of, under voluntary servitude. But some people actually agreed to actually became of their own volition, servants of others, slaves of others. You could, you had a choice what you could do with your life and with your strength and with your gifts, just like you have right now. But some of these people said, you know, I'm free to go on my own 
and fend for myself, but it's not going well. It's never going to go well. And I'm in debt unto my eyeballs. And I'm probably going to end up in debtor's prison. I'll give up my claim. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give up my claim to my own life and my own purposes and my own ambitions and sell myself to this good, merciful, generous master. It's as if you were to say, I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. I'm going to drive over to, I don't know, California, ring Bill Gates' doorbell and say, I can move in with my family, mow the lawn for a living, <laughs> anything, you know, I, I, I could do odd jobs. I'm yours for life. I wouldn't recommend it because Bill Gates isn't Jesus. But people did that. Indeed, Jesus bought us already paying off our debts with his blood. He did. He already paid the price up front. But this is voluntary. This means it must come from your heart. Saying something like, God, I surrender my claim to my own life where I wanted to go with it, what I wanted to do with it, what I aspire to become through it. I give up my claim to my own life at my best. I can't come close to, I can't hope to match the life, the extraordinary life you have in mind for me. Let me live to satisfy you. You're my master. You have the keys, Lord. Now take my life and lead me. It takes guts to do that. It takes guts to ask God to do that. And once you do, trust Him. There's no going back now. He has to see that you're all in. Jesus was even stronger about this than the Old Testament. Jesus, Jesus says, he says, you've heard him, uh, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who loses it for my sake will save it. You remember him saying that? And he says, verily, anyone who's not willing to give up mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and property and, and everything else, for my sake is not worthy of me. But if you do, in this life and the next, you'll have a hundred times whatever it is you gave up. And once you do, you're going to be in for a surprise. There's a reason you're going to discover something. He's waiting for you to do this on your own, voluntarily. You signing over the deed to your life and then wincing and seeing what happens. Maybe expecting whips and chains, but that is not the Lord's plan. That's the devil's plan for your life. Once you sign over the deed to your life to the Lord, you're going to discover why they call him the good Lord. You've heard old saints say that? The good Lord. The good Lord. The good master. Why do they call him that? Surprise! Now your life is his. 
turns to you and he says, you're all in? He says, yeah. He says, surprise, from now on, I'm not going to call you servant. I'm going to call you my friend. You're my friend. Because a, a, a servant does not know his master's business. It's like the angels deliberating over Abraham. Shall we, shall we keep things from our friend Abraham? He's going to open his heart to you. And more than that, you'll go from being a slave to an heir, a co-heir with Christ. His plan is to reign. We will reign with him. We'll become like him. What does that look like? I don't know. What's ahead for you? I'm not sure. What it means is that your life will start to resemble Jesus living through you. Your relationships will be like Jesus managing the relationships through you. Your thoughts will be like Jesus thinking through you. Your imagination will be flooded with the imagination of Jesus. And one of these days, we'll take off these duds. We'll see what we are and we'll discover that we are like him. It's an extraordinary life that God has in mind. And it can begin now. But it'll require that your, your allegiance to your last life, your, your current life, must go. You have to die to it. You have to die to your life, the, the life that you think you, this life, you've got to trust the Lord. Die to this life and embrace the life that you can't manufacture and bears no comparison to the life that the Lord has for you. Can you all bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment as we close this service? I'd like to pray all night I wonder whether to even ask this today. Does anybody want to take Jesus up on that this morning? Praise God, I see a hand. There's another hand. I want this life. There's another hand. I want this life. I want to trade this life I've got for the life of Christ, this extraordinary life that he has in mind. Spirit of God, you know what you're doing and working in my sister's life and in my brother's life. Pray this prayer with me if you raise your hand. Lord Jesus, I sign over the deed to my life. It was never really mine. You have lent it to me. I give it back to you. Take my life. Let me serve you with it. Let me satisfy you with it. And make of my life something extraordinary for the glory of your great 